The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 5. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about soul-ending rituals, disturbing disturbances, evil exhibits, and insidious investigations. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the dare, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, Settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Soren Narnia, creator of the Knife Point Horror Podcast. If you enjoy what you hear, be sure to check out more of Soren's work on that program, too. In tonight's tale, we are transported to the late 1800s, where a U.S. congressman and others are debating how best to rein in fraud being committed by spiritualist charlatans. What he discovers over the course of his investigations, however, may leave him second-guessing his own beliefs and unsure of what's real. Without further ado, I present to you Eyes. My name's Wesley Herod. In the year 1884, when I was 40 years of age, I took office in the United States Congress, representing the state of Virginia. I found myself dealing with all manner of political issues that year, large and small. 
One of the most minor required me to sit on an unpublicized committee whose charge it was to deal with a growing problem in some large eastern cities, namely the placing of the public by spiritualists and fortune-tellers. There was no regulation on such activities then, and complaints about shysters passing themselves off as mediums and psychics poured into politicians' files at a shocking rate. The problem became so great that Congress itself appointed five men to hold informal hearings on the subject. I became involved with the committee as a favor to a colleague. On one of my first vacation days from Congress, I volunteered to attend a seance with another congressman, Mr. Thomas Branch of Georgia, to see for ourselves what sort of hucksterism was being passed off in Washington. The seance was held in a brownstone at 11th Street and C by a Mrs. Evelyn Crowdy, who charged a handful of spectators four dollars each to witness her attempt to contact the deceased wife of a man named Grantham. This was the second such event Mr. Branch and I had attended that week. He and I sat in a dark living room with three other men and watched as Mrs. Crowdy blew out every candle in the room, then took Mr. Grantham's hand to begin the ceremony. The place, black as soot. There was no light anywhere, which we had not expected. Mr. Grantham had been visibly aggrieved from the moment he entered the house, and the atmosphere was spectacularly unsettling. I was already quite angered at Mrs. Crowdy's indifference toward a guest's plight. What a cruel sham she had staged, I thought. What cheek to do this to a suffering man. Something unusual happened that night, however. After a couple of minutes of silence, Mrs. Crowdy addressed the spirit world at length and eventually spoke directly to Grantham's wife. Crowdy invited her to make her presence known through sound. It was raining that night, and soon after, Crowdy stopped speaking, all of us waiting in silence for any sort of sign from the beyond. We did hear one anomalous sound mixed in with the rain, the single sharp clanging of one metallic object against another, coming from outside the house down below on the street. At length, Crowdy asked Mrs. Grantham's spirit to make the sound again. From the street the sound was repeated. I formed the assumption that Mrs. Crowdy must have an assistant out on the street somewhere. My colleague, Mr. Branch, assumed the same thing. Branch knew that in the almost total darkness he could leave his chair and maneuver slightly toward the window so that he could get a good look outside without Mrs. Crowdy seeing him. So he awaited for her to ask for another sound, then made his subtle move. But when the third clanging came, he could see no one out on the street. The fourth time the sound was made, it seemed to him to be emanating from the lamp post directly outside the house. He took his seat again, confused, looking at me quizzically. I temporarily stopped thinking about some deceitful swindle as Mrs. Crowdy continued to speak, 
for I had begun to feel physically strange, overly warm and uncomfortable. I suffered with a curious and unpleasant sensation that my skin was wet all over, yet I was not sweating. Then came something truly unsettling. While my night vision should have been virtually useless in the pitch dark, I began to make out the images of Crowdy and Grantham and the others through the blackness, fuzzy at first, but then more and more clearly. Within minutes, I could see almost everything in some detail, but utterly without color. I saw that the candles in the room were still unlit, and this seemed to prove that my mind was playing a bizarre trick on me. When I looked to my left, I saw Mr. Branch very well. My vision had become so acute that if I so desired, I could have gotten up out of my chair and walked easily to the door across the room. I saw Mrs. Crowdy's hand tighten its grip on Mr. Grantham's. Her eyes were shut in the dark, and her head was cocked back as far as was humanly possible, as if she were being forced to stare at something on the ceiling in a spot behind her. Mrs. Crowdy asked Mr. Grantham to speak to his wife. There followed a long, sad, trembling monologue from Grantham to the woman in which he begged her to show herself in some way and come back to him whenever she could. Because Mrs. Crowdy encouraged him to keep speaking, he went on for ten minutes. During this time, the sensation of having wet skin all over intensified for me. Then there was something else when I turned my head to the right. I saw a woman sitting in one of the chairs Mrs. Crowdy had set out for us, beside one of the other spectators. The woman, previously unnoticed, was perhaps in her twenties. She was the only one in the room, other than myself, with her eyes open. She seemed to be able to see in the dark as well. She turned her face to me at length, unsmiling. At that point, I closed my eyes, wanting desperately to be away from the room. I didn't understand what was happening. Only a sudden shout caused me to open my eyes again. When I did, the woman was gone. The shout interrupted Mr. Grantham's monologue. It came from the street outside. A woman had cried, See me, in a harsh tone. This time, Mr. Branch did not cover his move to the window with any sort of stealth. He looked out and saw, again, no one. Mrs. Crowdy announced, that she was going to light a candle and that her connection with the spirit world had been broken. Even before the candle was lit, I saw that there was something wrong with the woman's eyes. The newly born flame made it clear to everyone else as well. Both her eyes had puffed up and become severely bruised during her trance. She looked as if she had been punched not once, but several times. She was almost as alarmed as the spectators were to discover it, though she tried to downplay the affliction. Then everyone saw what was most chilling, which was that Mr. Grantham bore a line of words across the front of his neck. It was Mr. Branch who pointed this out. Upon closer examination, 
all in the room deduced that the words had somehow been made with regular India ink. They said, Herod will see me forever. Mrs. Crowdy did not know the names of her spectators. She asked us if anyone named Herod was in the room. I was forced to acknowledge that this was my name. A panic, Mr. Grantham wanted to know what the message meant. I assumed the man that I had no knowledge of, his wife, and was a stranger in town, just looking for amusement. Mrs. Crowdy told the group that she would normally try again to contact Mrs. Grantham's spirit, but the circumstances now seemed impossible, and she advised everyone to go home. On my journey from the house, the sensation of wet skin faded slowly, and my vision returned to normal. Upon entering my own dark house, the place was filled with just that, pure darkness. Comparing memories the next day, Mr. Branch and I were honestly flabbergasted as to how Mrs. Crowdy had achieved her effects. I told him nothing of my personal trauma during the seance. Mrs. Crowdy requested to see me a few days later, having discovered my true political identity. I agreed to come to her house on a Sunday afternoon. We met alone. There, her eyes, still somewhat swollen, Mrs. Crowdy told me that it had not been Mrs. Grantham's spirit that tried to contact us some nights before. It had been someone else, and that someone had intended to frighten me specifically. And the spirit had been extremely powerful and vengeful. She asked if anyone, particularly any woman, had cause to antagonize me. I did not tell her that I had recognized the woman who appeared to me in the darkness. It was a woman I had known under horrible circumstances seven years before. It had all taken place in the Washington suburb of Falls Church, when I was nothing more than a town selectman who owned a small grocery store. Two years before I decided to run for higher office, in 1879, one of my almost daily customers was a docile young woman named Shirley Frost. She almost never said a word to me in the six months I attended to her at the store. Then one day, she unexpectedly ventured to engage me in some shy small talk, and then asked if she could tell me something in confidence. Her husband, a man named Hugh, had become increasingly delusional and seemed to be losing his mind. She didn't know what to do. Right there in the store, she began to cry. I was completely confused, at a loss. So I only told the woman that she should talk to her family about the problem. Secretly, I hoped she would never return to the store again. But she kept coming back, though she once again lapsed into silence, offering only a polite hello and responding to my how are you, inquiries, with polite detachment. But I sensed the woman was becoming more and more troubled. Sometimes she stopped in the middle of her food requests and stared blankly into space. One day, I finally felt the obligation to ask her if her troubles had been resolved. 
When she began to lose control of herself again, I closed the store and ushered her to the storage room, where I asked her to tell me how bad things really were. The year before, she said, her once normal husband had begun to imagine she was conspiring against him to send him to jail for poisoning a dog that had continually run onto their property, and he sometimes accused her of hiding evidence of her plots inside graves at a nearby cemetery. He began to buy books about witchcraft in order to foil her black magic with his own, he said. He had even attempted several spells, to no avail, of course, and when his attempts at witchcraft went awry, he locked himself inside their bedroom out of fear that his wife might kill him. Just the night before, she had served him dinner he would not eat, claiming his books had told him that any meal prepared by her would cause his blood to boil and rot. He said she was leaving him, no choice, but to consider summoning a demon to protect himself. Hugh Frost had stopped working, and there was almost no money left. The doctor she'd seen offered to do nothing until her husband became a danger to someone. She had no family besides a very elderly mother and no friends. She practically begged me to help her, claiming that I was the kindest person she knew personally. I told her that I would think of something. That was on a Friday. I mused upon the problem over the weekend, but I found myself at a loss for how to help the woman. I spoke to a doctor I knew and realized that the woman really was powerless to commit her husband to a mental hospital unless the man did truly do something dangerous. When Shirley Frost came into the store on Tuesday, I told her that I just didn't know what to do and I was sorry. She asked if it was possible that she could come to my house and stay there for just a little while. She found it unbearable to sleep in the same room as her increasingly deranged, increasingly silent husband. I couldn't agree to this. I wouldn't know what to tell my wife. So Shirley Frost left the store, visibly devastated, and she never returned. A week went by, and my guilt and fear mounted. I decided to take Mrs. Frost's monthly grocery bill to her personally. I took her address from my files and walked a mile to her home in Arlington. When I got there, I sensed the house was empty even before I knocked on the door. When my hand struck the wood, the door creeped open halfway. When no one answered my greeting, I walked inside. I found the house emptied of all possessions and furniture. Mrs. Frost and her husband had vacated. I walked through the house, baffled. I saw nothing that hinted at anything sinister, and then I forced myself to descend into the dark cellar, which received only a little bit of light coming in from the open front door. I saw something down there, large letters, possibly, marked on the floor, which had nothing more than packed smooth dirt, but I could not make them out in the dark. I left the empty house, walked down the street to purchase a candle, and then returned. Back in the cellar, I lit the candle and held the flame as close to the door as I could, 
moving it in a wide circle to slowly make out the markings etched into the dirt. Little by little, it became obvious that what I was looking at was a pentagram. Someone had tried to obscure it by kicking dirt over it, but enough of it remained to identify it. Remembering the possible significance of a pentagram from some readings at university, I backed out of the cellar quickly, deeply afraid that whoever made the design might suddenly return. I went back home and my life resumed. I never saw nor heard from Mrs. Frost again. My real career in politics began shortly afterward. I left the psychic, Mrs. Crowdy's house, in a deeply frightened state. I had told her very little about myself and nothing about Mrs. Frost. I hoped the whole episode would just fade away. I managed to excuse myself from any more dealings with the committee, looking into fraudulent fortune-tellers. After a month of unsettling feelings, unable to make peace with what I had experienced at Mrs. Crowdy's seance, I walked to her house late at night and made an appointment with her servant. Now I planned to tell her everything. My conscience was killing me. I had refused to read any of Mrs. Crowdy's messages to me after our first talk. These had come once a week and right into the trash bin they went. The essence of those messages was that I should come see her again as soon as humanly possible. When I came to Mrs. Crowdy's house at 11 p.m. on the 21st of October, 1884, she told me that two seances, since the one I had witnessed, had been disrupted by the spirit who had tried to frighten me that first time. She asked if I was ready to tell her everything. I finally did. My relief lasted only a minute. Crowdy told me that only through another seance could she use her channeling powers to ask the spirit of Shirley Frost to stay away from me. Mrs. Frost had obviously died at some point. There was no other explanation, and now she was viciously angry at me. No spirit, Mrs. Crowdy said, had ever physically punished her as Frost had, blackening her eyes. And it was a terrible sign, she claimed, that I had been able to see her sitting in an empty chair in the dark. I didn't want to sit for a seance. I most definitely did not believe in ghosts. All I had really wanted was to unburden myself, or so I thought. But some part of me knew the woman was not a liar. After an hour of Crowdy's pleading, I agreed to sit for just thirty minutes or so while she attempted to channel Shirley Frost's spirit. I thought that perhaps I could achieve some sort of closure just through this simple, harmless act. The candles were blown out, and Crowdy took my hand. Hers was unnaturally cold, horribly so. She informed me that I was in no danger tonight, that she would not allow certain pathways of her mind to be manipulated. I might hear and see nothing at all. The dead, she said, most often communicated their thoughts in faint images and concepts released into the channeler's mind. She would try to relate them to me. I was satisfied with this and more than a little relieved. 
seance truly began. I kept my eyes shut tight. Soon I heard Crowdy groaning strangely, and when I asked if she was all right, she did not respond. As the minutes passed, I sensed her moving in her chair. Her breathing became audibly ragged. I did open my eyes just for a moment. My night vision did not become unnaturally heightened as before. Although Crowdy kept a grip on my hand throughout, her hand never became warmer. In fact, it seemed to become even colder. I endured this bizarre experience for about a full half hour. At about the twenty-minute mark, something happened that terrified me. I thought I could hear a human voice shouting as if from down multiple corridors, muffled and desperate, and I would have sworn that the voice was coming from right in front of me somehow, somewhere deep inside Mrs. Crowdy's throat. The muffled voice's cries lasted for only thirty seconds, but in those thirty seconds I thought I might break away and run for the front door. Thirty minutes after the seance began, Mrs. Crowdy suddenly tore her hand from mine, and I heard her chair rock back and almost topple over. She got up and lit a few candles. When I saw her face in the new gloom, I was shocked and appalled. Her eyes had again been blackened somehow. Now, too, there were dark red marks on her throat. The marks very clearly represented a large handprint as if someone had tried to strangle the woman. When I examined the handprint mark closely, it began to fade in front of my eyes like a bruise that was suddenly healing a hundred times faster than it should have. Mrs. Crowdy told me that she had spent five full minutes in contact with the spirit of Shirley Frost. In that time, the woman I had known only briefly seven years before had sworn bloody vengeance on me. She despised me for my inaction, an action that she believed led directly to her death. I was horrified to realize that her husband had actually killed her, but Mrs. Crowdy said that this was not strictly the case. Mrs. Frost had died only a week after her husband had suddenly moved them to Boston. But it wasn't her husband's hand that committed the murder. Mrs. Crowdy claimed that Shirley Frost was killed by a demon. This demon's name was Tazku Nil. It had been raised by her husband. This demon had caused her unimaginable pain for two whole days. Before it died, it tore her body apart. Mrs. Crowdy told me she had been able to see the demon for a full second during her trance. The spirit of Shirley Frost had shown it to her. Seeing it, Crowdy whispered to me, was like dying. In that one moment I believed everything, as insane as it seemed. I asked Mrs. Crowdy what I could do to ask for Mrs. Frost's forgiveness. The woman had been so docile, so meek. I didn't understand how she could have become so powerful and cruel. Mrs. Crowdy believed there was nothing I could do. Trembling, she told me that the seance had been a terrible mistake. Having been made so physically and mentally weak during that time in the dark, she had allowed Mrs. Frost's spirit to gain too much entry into the living world. 
Bastard would bore almost no resemblance to the person Mrs. Frost may have once been, would try to torture me in any way she could. Her anger was eternal. She had implanted these words in Mrs. Crowdy's mind again and again. Herod will see me forever. All Mrs. Crowdy could do was urge me to pray, attend church, be calm. There was nothing more she could do for me. I lived under great stress after that night, and less than two weeks later, the affliction that would drive me to the brink of insanity struck. I beheld the image of Shirley Frost standing in the middle of Constitution Avenue one day, watching me as I spoke to a colleague. She wore the type of conservative dress she had often worn when she'd visited my store years before. When I looked directly at her face, I saw that her gaze was cold and lifeless. When I looked away, I expected the frightening image to vanish, but it didn't. As my colleague continued to speak with me, the specter of Shirley Frost appeared everywhere I looked, always the same distance away, about fifty feet. I realized that if I moved my left arm, the specter did the same. When I put a hand to my forehead, so did Shirley Frost. I was being mirrored, a mocking gesture that both enraged and terrified me. I excused myself from my conversation and began to walk back to the Capitol building. When I did, the specter did the same, walking with her back to me, taking the same steps, walking down the same hallways. I did not know it then, but from that moment on, I would see Shirley Frost in my field of vision for the rest of my days. The mirroring continued day and night, even when I was in my home. Sitting in my living room, I saw the specter in the corner. When I ate my dinner, accompanied by my wife, I could see in my peripheral vision the specter putting food into her mouth as well. There were times when the mirroring stopped, Shirley Frost never went away as long as my eyes were open. She was never more than fifty feet or so away from me. She stood in the corner of my bedroom. She sat in the corner of my office in the Capitol building, sometimes mimicking the shuffling of papers or the signing of a document. She never spoke. Her facial expression was always the same. I soon stopped looking directly at her, for to look at her face was to bring myself closer and closer to suicide. When I realized that the specter was permanent, I consulted doctor after doctor about it, but nothing they tried worked for me. I was forced to tell my wife the entire story. She remained by my side to help me. My record as a congressman became marked by absenteeism and extended medical leaves. I resigned my post six months before completing my first term, telling my constituents that my eyesight was rapidly failing and I would soon be blind. I quickly disappeared from public life. Even before that, my friends and colleagues never saw me without dark glasses on. I told them that a congenital problem had taken my eyesight. The truth was that only when I was banished to total darkness did the image of Shirley Frost leave me be. 
I was safe with my eyes closed. One year and eleven months after leaving office, I embarked upon a secret trip to Boston in order to visit the grave of Shirley Frost. I knelt there and begged for her forgiveness, my eyes shut tight so that I would not see her image mirroring me in the cemetery. Afterwards, I went to a nearby pub for a drink and entered the dim bathroom. I removed my dark glasses and took a few minutes, as I did each day, to see. In the mirror, I was confronted with the fact that my eyes had mysteriously become bruised and puffy, as if struck. I then saw the image of Shirley Frost standing almost directly behind me, closer than she had ever come. She was less than three feet from me. In very confined spaces, she had always still appeared to be some distance away, but not now. What's more, she had changed. Her once sadly pretty face was a dark and sickly gray. Her eyes were clouded with cataracts, and for the first time her mouth was severely bloodied. There was a long gash on her neck, more than an inch deep. Patches of her hair appeared to have been ripped from her head, leaving wounds. It was as if she had been attacked by an animal. When I saw her, I screamed and ran out of the bathroom. I bolted through the patrons of the pub and kept going. I knew there could be no life for me then. In another pub, I drank myself into a stupor. Sometime after midnight, my drunken ramblings took me to a back-alley tattoo artist to whom I crazily offered $100 if he could refer me to a medical man who would sew my eyelids permanently shut. I was ejected under the street again, only wanting to die. The solution to my agony was found inside a bottle of vodka, which I first emptied into my throat and then broke over a park bench. It was in that park, just before dawn, that I blinded myself with a shard of jagged glass. I awoke in a hospital bed, a ruined man, but a free one. Thus, the past nine years of my life have been utterly without sight, but I have not seen Shirley Frost again. If the woman has any mercy in her soul, she will appear just once even inside my useless eyes, so that the shock of being so close to her will carry me away from this world. But I fear this is not to be. She has won her vengeance, and I will die a broken man. Let the annals of political history write that Wesley Herod was a fair and just public servant, and make no mention of the sickness that removed me from office and destroyed my soul, and let me be buried not in Washington, but in the Boston Cemetery where Shirley Frost lies, in a last attempt to atone for a sin I never meant to commit. I hope you enjoyed Eyes by author Soren Narnia, as performed by yours truly. Once again, if you enjoyed what you've just heard, be sure to check out more of the author's work on the Knife Point Horror Podcast. You won't be sorry you did. 
Up next, we've got another terrifying tale, this one from author Michael Landry, better known in the creepypasta community as Shadow Swimmer 77. In it, an investigation into the disappearance of local children leads a gentleman down a path far darker than even he could have imagined. Without further ado, from author Michael Landry, I present to you A Bad Night. You're making a mistake. I'm sorry you feel that way, Mr. Monaghan. Our decision has been made. But there's nothing more to be said. Your final check will be in the mail tomorrow. Molly and I thank you for your services. Click. Jack Monahan sat behind the desk in the dingy room that served as his office, staring at the now silent receiver held in his hand, as if willing the voice at the other end to come back. After a few moments, the phone started beeping, letting him know it was still off the hook. Jack rested a strong urge to bash the thing to pieces against his desk, and instead, ever so carefully, placed the receiver back on the cradle with a resounding click of its own. The sound echoed hollowly through the room, perfectly mirroring the empty feeling that had suddenly appeared in his gut. Damn it! He'd been so close! His right hand, almost of its own accord, reached down to the drawer where he kept a bottle of cheap bourbon, half empty and soon to be more so, and a glass that was only slightly dirty. He set the two next to each other on the desk and, after a moment's consideration, returned the glass to the drawer. He removed the top from the bottle and took a long swallow. The slow, burning sensation traveling from his belly up to the base of his throat, drove the empty feeling back ever so slightly. Jack sighed. Drunk or no, either way, this was going to be a bad night. The case had been about kids, but for Jack it had started with just one. June Benson, eight-year-old daughter of Chase and Molly Benson, had gone missing after school one day about three weeks ago. Her parents were decidedly well off, but no ransom or other demands had ever come. The cops asked some questions at the school, filed some paperwork, and ultimately ruled her as a runaway. The Bensons weren't satisfied with that assessment, and hired Jack to follow up where the uniforms wouldn't. Jack agreed with them that something smelled off. A little digging showed the rabbit hole went down a hell of a lot deeper than June Benson. Carefully applying some financial lubrication, Jack got one of his old contacts in the department to spill the beans. There were a lot of kids that had gone missing in the last two months, almost three dozen all told. Part of the reason for the general lack of panic was that most of the kids were low income, if not outright homeless. On top of that, Jack's contact heavily hinted that there was pressure from a very long way up the food chain to keep a lid on the cases and sweep each and every one of them under the rug. The thing that smelled off started to stink like a fish market. 
Jack hit the streets. He went to June's school and the surrounding apartments. Then, finding nothing, he rolled up his sleeves and waded into the scum on the other side of the city. He canvassed the halfway houses, the tent city under Eastbrook Bridge, the wakeside slum where cops would only go in force. Everywhere he went, he asked the same questions. Has anyone seen anything? Does anyone know about these missing kids? For a week, he was disappointed until finally he got a bite. The informant was obviously a junkie and was even more obviously looking for a fix. But he said he'd seen something. Namely, two goons in suits shoving a black bag over a young boy's head and throwing him into an unmarked van outside a crack house the junkie had been flopping at. What's more, and what earned him the twenty bucks in Jack's outstretched hand, was he heard one of the goons say a name. Marks. Suddenly, the pieces had begun falling into place. Graydon Marks was the owner of a pharmaceutical subsidiary that kept a production plant outside of town. It made a sick kind of sense that Marks might have decided to take kids as unwilling unpaid subjects for new drugs they were testing, and he was one of the only individuals with both enough political and monetary pull to keep the mayor's office and police department on lockdown. Granted, it was a long shot, and June didn't fit the profile of the rest of the missing kids, but Jack had been desperate to find even the thinnest thread to follow. The plant lay on a sprawling property outside the city limit, where Marx kept a house that served as his primary residence when he was in town. Jack had been surreptitiously stalking the place out for the last three days and had seen several unmarked vans driven by pairs of suit-wearing tough guys coming and going from the main entrance of the compound. He'd planned on taking a closer look tonight. But then, when he'd been at the office getting ready to head over to the plant, Chase had called him out of the blue and said, Thanks, but they wouldn't be needing him to keep looking into June's disappearance after all. End of discussion. Jack leaned back in his chair and looked into the bottle, pensively swirling the bourbon around the bottom. Fuck it. He came to the decision abruptly, standing up and slamming down the bottle onto the desktop. He hadn't known the Bensons for long, but this was completely out of character. Something was up, and damn it, there were kids at risk. He might not be getting paid to follow up the lead, but Jack's conscience wasn't going to let him just sit and get wasted. He took his overcoat from the back of the chair and threw it on before reaching into the other drawer, where he kept Cheryl. The Colt 357 was a thing of beauty, and he did a quick check to make sure each of her six cartridges were loaded before sliding her into his shoulder holster and slipping a box of spare shells into his jacket pocket. With that, he stepped out into the hallway and resolutely locked the door behind him. Dark clouds covered the pale winter moon as Jack moved the car to the side of the road and pulled into a small clearing he'd discovered earlier in the week. He got out and hastily removed a tarp from the back seat 
and threw it over the car. In the dark, the vehicle would be effectively invisible to anyone on the road. It had been steadily snowing for the last few hours, so he briefly went back to the road and did his best to cover the tracks leading into the clearing. It stopped about a mile short of the entrance to the compound. With only one road leading in or out and no other turnoffs, getting too close wouldn't serve for any kind of sneaking. The approach to the plant was thick with trees, so Jack would be able to stay in the woods, but keep in sight of the road to guide his path. Wrapping his coat more tightly about himself against the cold, he started trudging toward the compound. A strange moaning caused him to start, his hand flying under his coat to rest on Cheryl. Jack scanned around him, heart beating wildly. The trees, in their stark nakedness, reached into the bleak sky like the fingers of the damned, a light wind causing them to creak and groan in their torment. Otherwise, all was silent. Despite the cold, a slow bead of sweat rolled down Jack's nose, and the tiny hairs on the back of his neck standing at attention. After a few moments, he turned and continued his trek. His hand remained on the butt of the revolver, he reached the perimeter fence without incident. He'd scouted the area and found an expansive fence where the trees masked the view of the security cameras and was out of sight of the main gate. Earlier today, he had used a pair of wire cutters to make an entrance. Slightly winded as he squeezed through the fence, days like this served to remind him that his youth was a distant memory. Jack cursed under his breath as he felt sharp edges of wire catch on his coat. Then he was in. Jack's reconnaissance hadn't let him work out the patrol patterns of any security guards, but now he saw he needn't have worried too much. In fact, other than the guards in the shack at the main gate, there didn't seem to be any physical security on the grounds. He decided to start looking at the house. Making his way across the snowy terrain, Jack saw the residence atop a low hill a couple hundred yards ahead, light glaring from every window. He crept closer, doing his best to use the trees that dotted the yard to mask his approach. He stopped behind the closest tree and was considering how to proceed when the front door opened and three figures stepped outside. The first Jack knew only by reputation, but the early sheen that emitted from his too-wide smile identified him as Graydon Marks. Jack's jaw dropped when he saw the people behind Marks were Chase and Molly Benson. Jack was just close enough to hear the end of their conversation. And can we see her, Mr. Marks? Oh, presently, presently, my dear Chase. In fact, that's where we're going now. Come on, along. The millionaire switched on a large industrial flashlight and led the Bensons around behind the house. Jack followed, silent as a shadow. At first, Jack assumed they'd be going to the pharmaceutical plant to the west of the house, but soon found he was mistaken. Instead, Marks walked directly south, straight into woods that were even thicker than those through which Jack had approached the compound. They walked for maybe twenty minutes, Jack struggling to stay quiet, 
and keep the bouncing beam of Mark's flashlight in sight. After a time, he could see a strange flickering ahead, which, once they got close enough, he could identify as a roaring bonfire set in a small clearing. He stopped about fifty feet short of the fire and hid himself behind a tree. He could see the Bensons were agitated. Molly, clinging to her husband, Chase, obviously enraged, shouting at Marks. What's the meaning of this, Marks? You said you were taking us to see our daughter. And so I have, Chase, so I have. She'll be here shortly. The fire, you see. We've found it draws them. The millionaire smiled and moved to a tree at the edge of the clearing. In a smooth motion, he hoisted himself up into a hunting platform, set on the lower branches. Ah, here she is now. The pale shape of a little girl moving into the clearing. Jack recognized June from the pictures her parents had given him, but only just. Her once sparkling eyes were dull and empty, lacking even the most rudimentary intelligence. Her face slack. A dried, reddish smear crusted around her mouth. The girl was dressed in rags, her hands and feet bare. She shuffled forward, almost stumbling into the fire, paying no mind to her parents or the heat. Something was very wrong. Oh, my God, baby! Molly Benson threw herself at her child, sweeping her up in a hug. Jack saw a look of ecstasy pass across the girl's face, and a terrible hunger entered her eyes as she suddenly opened her mouth and sank her teeth into her mother's neck. Molly screamed, and Chase lunged for his wife as a fountain of blood erupted, washing June's face in gore. The girl rode her mother to the ground, worrying at the wound like a wild animal. Jack felt the world lurch. Chase was struggling to pry June off Molly when Jack saw other small shapes had entered the clearing. Chase didn't notice until the things that had once been children were practically on top of him, and by then it was far too late. Jack turned and ran. He sprinted through the forest, mindless now of the noise he was making. His only thought on escape Branches reached out and tried to tangle his arms. Stones thought to trip him up. Abruptly, a root caught his foot and sent him tumbling head over heels. His head met a tree with a sickening thud. Then blackness. When he awoke, the first thing he noticed was the pain. Next, the cold. Shaking his head to try to clear it, Jack looked around. He'd been stripped down to his T-shirt and boxers, his hands secured with a rope to the trunk of the tree above his head. To his front, Mark stood in the clearing, the bonfire burning merrily behind him, two piles of rapidly cooling red and flesh-colored pulp pouring steam into the frosty air at his feet. He held Cheryl in his hands, the revolver glinting cruelly in the firelight. Oh, Mr. Monahan, good you're awake. He smiled. You have my admiration. Commendable detective work for these past few weeks, if not the most discreet. He clicked his tongue. 
I hope you didn't think you were being especially sneaky, he sighed. Still, it would have gone easier for you if you would have just taken the hint when I had the Bensons let you go. They were so frantic at the thought of being reunited with their daughter, they were fully prepared to do any little thing I asked. But here we are. I must say, this is a truly excellent firearm. He admired the magnum for another moment before pointing it at Jack and pulling the trigger. The sound was enormous. A blossom of agony roared up Jack's leg and then dulled. When he opened his eyes, he saw the shattered rune that had once been his right foot. Marks stooped down in front of him. Must be going, old chap. I'd tell you to simply walk away from this, but you've squandered that opportunity already, and, well, it'd be quite impossible now for a multiple of reasons. He inclined his head forward toward Jack's destroyed foot. However, as I've confessed my admiration, I've decided to give you a sporting chance. There's a very realistic possibility you'll bleed out before the children get hungry again. Good luck. With that, he walked out of the clearing into the darkened woods. Jack lay there in the snow, the white around him slowly turning red his eyesight failing the dull pain that had been emitting from his foot, gradually built to a crescendo. At the edge of his vision, he could just make out a small shape entering the clearing and slowly shuffle toward him, soon followed by another. He began slipping into unconsciousness as he felt the first tiny, questioning hands start to explore his exposed, freezing flesh. His last thought, before his entire world was consumed by blackness and pain, was that he guessed he'd been right at the office after all. Either way, this was going to be a bad night. I hope you enjoyed A Bad Night by author Michael Shadow Swimmer 77 Landry, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. 
You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>Ha, ha, 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 ha.